You guys know sometimes you'll hear somebody tell you something, KU won the first round game, or KU lost the first round game, or whatever, and you're incredulous. You can't believe it. Somebody tells you something, you can't believe it. And you, why is it that you know somebody tells you something and you can't? You find it hard to believe. What what makes something difficult to believe? We're in John 19 this morning, and this is kind of the culmination. We're in verses 1 through 16. That's where we'll be parked. We're in the culmination or the final rejection of the Jewish leaders and nation to Jesus. Ultimate, blatant rejection of Jesus. And the question kind of comes up, why is that? What's the deal? In other words, Jesus presents himself to the nation and he says, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one you've been waiting for. And he produces proof through all these miracles. And yet... At the end of the day, the Jewish leaders, those who knew the most religiously, if you will, the spiritual mentors and leaders of the nation, the ones who knew their Bible the best, they turn around and say, this isn't the guy. And they reject him. And you've got to ask yourself, how does this happen? Why would they reject Christ? What's the process by which they hear what he says, they see the validation... And at the end of the day, they say, he's not it. We don't believe in him. We've covered this ground many months ago in John 5, 44, which is, this is the reason. Jesus gives us the reason why we don't believe truth and why they didn't believe truth in their time. And he says this in John 5, 44. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Back in John 5, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of his day and they believe in Moses and they say, we're God's people and Moses is our guy and we believe Moses. And Jesus says, well, really you don't. And the reason you don't believe, you really don't believe Moses, even though you quote him, and the reason you don't believe me is because you don't want God's kingdom and you don't want the truth because it opposes your own personal preferences and priorities. In fact, in John eleven forty eight, when Caiaphas was speaking, he says, If we let him, Jesus, go on like this, all men will believe in him. In other words, from Jesus' enemy, the high priest, he says his, his proof, his credibility is so good that if we don't do something to stop him, everyone will believe in him. This is an insult they're saying, but this just says Jesus is believable. He's credible. The miracles are there. People are going to believe in Him if we don't stop Him. And the reason we need to stop Him is is because of this. The Romans will come in and take away both our place and our nation. And the, the emphasis there is on our. Our place and our nation. So what's the threat to the Pharisees here, the religious leaders? The thing is this. They don't actually like the arrangement they've got with the Romans. Because remember, they're ruled by Rome. And Palestine, Israel, it's just this little niche, little corner of the Roman world. So they don't ultimately call their own shots. But within this overarching rule of Rome, they pretty much do things their way. So for them, Jesus' teaching was threatening. It wasn't something they wanted to believe because they're basically saying, look, life isn't all that we want it to be, but it's pretty good. And if this guy comes in and upsets the apple cart, we'll lose our place our prestige, our positions of authority, the respectful greetings in the marketplace, etc. 
They had turf that they wanted to protect. So when Jesus comes and tells them the truth, they reject it because it opposes their own personal preference and priority. They don't believe the truth because the truth is against what they have already decided they want. And remember, uh, these are religious people. That, That is, they're like you and me. So they go to synagogue, we go to church. We read our Bible, they read the Torah and the law and the writings. Are are you with me? This applies. It's not just them 2,000 years ago, it's you and me today. If you and I entertain motivations, desires in life that run contrary to God's plan, our first preference is to reject the truth. Our first preference is to reject the truth. Have you ever had somebody come up and... um, confront you about something, tell you something about you or your life that, that was hard to take and, and maybe after a while you say, well, it turned out to be true. But what's your initial response? You, you, the defenses go up. You're insulted. And it's because, why is that? It's because someone is telling you something you don't want to hear because you want to think well of yourself and you want everyone else to think well of yourself. And so someone tells you the truth that it's threatening. Because it's going against something you hold dear, your, your opinion of yourself or what others might think of yourself. That's exactly why Jesus says these guys couldn't believe the truth. You receive glory from one another. And the thought there is, the glory I can put together for myself here is my priority. Or the little kingdom I can build in my own mind or by my own strength, that's my priority, not God's kingdom. No matter what I say. It's what I'm doing that tells the truth, what I really believe. So for these Jewish religious leaders, this ultimate rejection comes about because they don't really want God's kingdom. They want their kingdom. They want their version of it. This, in in a sense, if you will, this is their Tower of Babel. You remember when God tells the the guys early in Genesis 10 and 11, hey, you're going to disperse and fill the earth, and what do they do? They say, no, we're going to build our kingdom our way. They build their tower, and so God disperses them through the confusion of language. It's the same thing going on here. They've got a different motive, a different agenda, no matter what they say about God. And so they're able to ultimately reject Jesus because God's kingdom and His approval and His glory is not their priority. We're jumping in this morning at 19.1. And uh, guys, sometimes I love uh, literature. And so if I say things that you think are boring, that's okay. But there's irony, intentional irony in here. And we'll talk about that a little bit too. But starting uh, John 19, 1, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. If you have seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's film from a couple of years ago, you know what a scourging looks like. Pretty graphic, probably pretty true to life representation of what a Roman scourging looked like. So brutal that if Jesus hadn't been crucified. He could easily have died from the wounds of the scourging, given a little bit more time. And the brief period he hung on the cross six hours or so before he died, the the relatively quick death came because of the scourging. Crucifixion otherwise was a pretty lengthy process of dying. But if you'd already lost a lot of blood, a lot of uh, fluid volume, it wouldn't take long to die. And that's exactly what happened here. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, put a purple robe on him. They began to come up to him and to say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. 
Pilate says to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate says to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. By that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. This is probably a reference to Leviticus 24.16, which says, The one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And if you remember in the gospel stories, when they say, Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus says, I am. Uh, the high priest says, this is blasphemy. You're making a claim against God. Verse 8, Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. And by the way, there's some confusion on the Passover week. John's use of the Passover, I've mentioned before, he says the preparation of the Passover, this would be the Sabbath Passover. It wouldn't be the day of Passover. Remember, the Last Supper is the Passover meal. So there's some confusion sometimes as if Jesus is crucified at the time the Passover lamb on the day of Passover would have been sacrificed. It's a lovely thought, but it doesn't line up with the rest of the Scripture text. Luke says that the Last Supper occurred on the day the Passover lamb is killed. So when it says Passover, we're talking about the Sabbath Passover that they've got to get ready for. And it was about the sixth hour. This is Roman time John's talking about, so this is about six in the morning. Remember the trot, the arrest? And the trial and the visits he had have been through the night. So this is the next morning, 6 o'clock. Pilate says to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. Now, the irony here is this. Who's speaking the truth in this passage? And who's speaking, if not lies, the the roles are reversed here. Who's telling the truth? Look at these phrases. Pilate and the Romans actually speak the truth. They just don't mean it. And Pilate makes judgments, you remember we said, they're not based on the truth, but he makes judgments anyway. They're not based on the truth, but he speaks the truth. So here in verse 3, the soldiers say, Hail, King of the Jews. It's a joke and it's in jest, but the words they speak are true. Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 5, Pilate says, Behold the man. Now almost certainly this is a reference to one of two different passages. Remember Jesus came in a week earlier and one of Jesus' titles is the Son of Man. 
So when Pilate says, Behold the man, he may be, in a sense, mocking Jesus from a week earlier, saying, The Son of Man. Behold the Son of Man. Here he is. Or also it could be a reference to Zechariah 6.12, which the Jews knew, which is a clear messianic prophecy, in which Zechariah says, Behold the man, the branch. And it goes on to talk about God's Messiah building his temple. But in other words, here's Pilate saying, Behold the man making allusions to God's Messiah. Pilate, speaking words of truth. In verse 14 he says, Behold your king to the Jewish nation, and he is the king. And then in verse 15 he says, Shall I crucify your king? So Pilate's telling the truth. He doesn't act on these words of truth, and they're used sarcastically, but he is actually making statements that are true. The last one, which we'll see another week, In verse 19, of course, the plaque put above the cross says, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. So in this upside-down story, you've got the pagan Romans declaring words of truth to the unbelieving religious Jewish group. What does the Jewish group say? Verse 12, Everyone who opposes, excuse me, everyone who makes himself out a king opposes Caesar. (laughs) You've got to ask yourself, since when do the Jews care about Caesar? They despise being ruled by the Romans because they're God's chosen people. But here they say, hey, you can't let him go because if he affirms he's a king, he's opposing Caesar. So what they're really saying is, we'll choose Caesar instead of Jesus. We'll choose this king that we actually loathe and hate because we loathe and hate him less than the man that's standing before us today. And by the way, they really, uh, uh, Herod was a king, and his children were kings. And the Jews had no problem with that, and Rome had no problem with that, because, you know, in the ancient world, one king ruled other kings. There's no problem here. There were vassal kings under the great high kings. So actually, their statement's false, And their allegiance is now they're they're making to Caesar instead of to their own Messiah. Verse 15, it's even more clear, we have no king but Caesar. Now remember, these are Jews who say they're waiting for God's Messiah and His kingdom. And now with, with their king standing before them, they say we have no king but Caesar. They're speaking words that the Romans should have been speaking. In other words, John wants you to see this thing is turned totally upside down. The people who should recognize their king don't. The ones who you'd normally think would say he's not a king are saying he's your king. And then in verse 6 and 15, the Jews say twice, instead of hail our king, they say crucify him, crucify him. John just wants us to see the roles have just been totally reversed. The people who should have recognized the truth don't. And the ones who... There was no thought that they'd embrace the truth. They're the ones who are actually making those statements of truth. The world's been turned upside down. Remember the goal of John's gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. He tells you why he writes. And he writes so that you'll believe in Jesus, the Son of the living God, and by believing you'll have life in His name. So even in this passage where Jesus is being utterly rejected by the nation, the Romans are still proclaiming the truth that John wants you to get. And actually, he started his gospel telling you this is what happened because in John 1, 
Verse 11 and 12, He came to His own, and His own received Him not. That's this. That's this passage. They had the opportunity here to embrace their king. He came to His own, His own received Him not. But to as many as received Him, He gave the power to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Here's the rejection, ultimate blanket rejection of Christ in the gospel which John wants us to know. When you behold Him and believe, you've got life in His name. And by the way, this theme of not perceiving the truth or recognizing Jesus, I'm just going to go into this a little bit. Uh, This is prevalent through the scriptures. And there's a few different reasons for why we don't recognize the truth. We'll, We'll focus in on one. But there's other reasons too. Remember Isaiah 52 and 53? It's really one of the great prophecies in all the Bible because it talks about the suffering servant. And if you've read Isaiah, you know that the theme, key themes in Isaiah primarily are the suffering servant, and the Messiah. And Isaiah kind of highlighted the picture of the Messiah that the Jews didn't want to focus on, the suffering servant of God. And Isaiah 53 brings that up. If you look at the end of Isaiah 52, he starts this prophecy and he says this, His appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Now we think about this with the scourging and the, the brutalization of Jesus But the thought is you couldn't recognize who he was. Because he was marred, you couldn't see who he was. There's this lack of recognition. In Isaiah 53, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, this this, uh, element of God's telling Israel, my servant's going to come, but he's suffering. Isaiah says, who's going to believe it? They won't believe it. They won't recognize it. And in verse 2 in Isaiah 53, he says, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. In other words, around 800 B.C., Isaiah is writing about Jesus as the suffering servant and saying He won't be recognized. And on one hand, He's not recognized because His image is marred through the brutality of the Romans. But on the other, this thing is so wild that no one wants to believe it either. Remember for Israel under Rome, they're waiting for a Savior who will come on a horse, not a donkey, and who will rout the Romans, and who will raise the nation of Israel back up to its glory the way it was under Solomon and David. And even not that long ago under the Maccabees. So they're waiting for a high king to come in and kick everybody else and raise the nation back up. And so Isaiah says, when the suffering servant comes, it's not who they expect, and they're not going to recognize him. Jesus said in Matthew 17, Elijah already came and they didn't recognize him. Do you guys remember in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi says that before the Messiah would come, this Elijah figure would come and he'd prepare the way for the Savior, for the Son of Righteousness that would rise. And so the disciples are saying, well, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, then what about John the Baptist, or what about Elijah? And so Jesus says, well, he came, but he wasn't recognized either. They should have recognized him. And he spoke as in the spirit of Elijah, the scripture says. But he wasn't recognized either because he didn't look like what they thought he would. In Luke 19, 44, this is on Palm Sunday. This is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and everything looks great. But Jesus says on that same day, 
you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You remember on one hand the crowds welcome him in and cry Hosanna to the son of David. But on the other, the religious leaders are saying, tell the crowds to be quiet. They shouldn't be saying this to you. And Jesus laments because he knows the destruction that will follow Israel because they, in his words, did not recognize the time of their visitation that I was here. The real thing was here and it wasn't recognized. This doesn't just happen to people that didn't want Jesus. This happens to people who knew him too and loved him. So when you get to the tomb in John 20, after the resurrection, Mary goes to the tomb, verse 13, there are angels there and they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? She says, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and didn't know that it was Jesus. Here's Mary. She loves Christ. She's looking for his body. And she sees him and doesn't know it's him. And I'm not sure entirely why. In this case, there's another case following that we'll look at. His appearance had changed. This actually happens a few times in the end of the Gospels. But here's Jesus standing in front of her and she doesn't know it's him until he says her name. Uh, Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. We won't read the passage, but you remember Jesus joins two of his disciples. They know him. They've heard him. They've seen him. He walks with them on this road and they don't know it's him. Now in their case, it says in Luke 24, 16, their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Their eyes were prevented. This this apparently means God did not allow them to recognize Jesus, probably so that he had the time and they were calm enough to listen to what he said. Where's Bob? Bob? On the road to Emmaus. Uh, We were talking in Sunday school that if you could pick a time or a place in the scripture, you know, who would you like to be? Whose place would you like to be? Bob had said, these are the guys I'd like to be because you'd walk along the road with Christ and he'd point out all those Old Testament references that talked about him. Well, that's what's going on here. Now, imagine if they saw Jesus and knew him right away, they'd be so hyped and excited, they probably wouldn't be able to hear anything else. So in their case, it says they're prevented from recognizing who he is because he wants them to be able to hear these scriptures. Then he reveals himself when he breaks bread and gives thanks. In this case, they're prevented. Sovereignly, God keeps them from recognizing Christ. And then later, Peter in the boat at Galilee in John 21, which we'll look at in coming weeks. But you remember, Pete's kind of fed up and ticked off, and so he goes back to the boat on the sea, and they go out fishing all night, and they don't catch anything. And and they're in the boat, and a guy's standing on shore, and you know he says, children, did you catch anything? And no, we didn't. And throw your net on the other side. And and it says, uh, the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. They see him. They hear him, and they still don't know who it is. In fact, when the story goes on, they're with him on the shore, and he's cooking them breakfast. It says they know it's the Lord, but it's not as if something just seems off to them. So anyway, you've got all these passages and these themes in which sometimes people don't recognize Christ specifically, and sometimes people don't recognize the truth, and we've got a variety of of options on why they don't recognize Christ or recognize the truth. This is one the truth doesn't look like we thought it would. We, we have an expectation that God's way in my life is going to look like this. God's work in your life is going to look like that. I have this expectation for good. I believe God's not going to do this. On the one hand, are you with me? Probably none of you ever have ever done this, where you have an expectation that God doesn't fulfill, or you believe He's committed to something and the bottom falls out. 
And you're saying to yourself, this can't be. You're, why are you struggling? Why are, why are our feet turning trying to catch up with reality? Because we had one expectation and the truth is different and we don't know what to do with the difference. And that's one of the reasons why people don't recognize truth. It's because we have an expectation and reality's different. And for sure for the Jews that was going on here. This expectation, a king that's going to ride in and put the Romans out and we get the suffering servant. It's not what we want, not what we expected. So we say no to that. That's not what we're after. That's one reason we can reject the truth. Another is this, that simply apart from God's illumination, you and I will not perceive certain things. We will not perceive certain things. Um, you remember in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that spiritual truth is spiritually discerned. And that you can tell someone whose mind is unenlightened by the Holy Spirit, you can tell them words of truth, and there's no capacity or there's a limited capacity to perceive that because they don't have the Holy Spirit's illumination. You know, we have a separation from God spiritually. We're spiritually dead. And so our mind's ability to perceive truth has been affected. And sometimes simply we don't see something until and unless God, uh, I don't want to say zaps us, but have you ever had moments where you've prayed about something for a long time or you're pondering over a scripture and there's some element about it you just can't understand and it's like the light goes on, and all of a sudden you get it, you get some element of truth you just had struggles with and couldn't get before, I believe God there by His Spirit is giving you illumination, just like the guys on the road. Prevented one minute, and then God turns the light on, and they get it. So sometimes for us, we don't perceive truth until God gives us spiritually by His Spirit the ability to grasp something. He turns the light on for us. And then the last one, and the one we want to avoid the one which is kind of where the chickens roost here, it's because we don't want the truth because it's not our agenda. This is what I want. You're telling me the truth, and that's not what I want. And so I'm going to say, no thanks to that. I'm going to choose to believe this anyway. Have you ever interacted with someone in which you've warned them about the absolute um, things that are going to follow their decisions if they choose to do certain things? And they'll blithely tell you, no way, no how. Won't happen to me. Because in their mind, they're different than everybody else and they can make choices and those choices won't have effects. And why is that? It's because they really want what they want. So don't bug me with the truth. Don't give me the details. I don't want to hear it because I really want this thing. And I think this is the place where you and I need to be careful. Um, divine illumination, if we're not going to get it till God shows us, hey, that's God's deal and He'll show us what we need to learn. Things don't look the way we th- thought they would or maybe hoped they would. That's something typically that we might be able to come around on later. Do you know what I mean? That you see it, you hear it once or see it once and you think, not what I expected, but you warm up to it given enough time. Okay, I'm, I'm getting a better grasp on that. Okay, I see it now. The willful rejection of the truth is the one you've got to look out for. This is the one that will get you in the end, as it did them. Do you remember uh, the story of Balaam in the Old Testament where this renegade prophet is disobeying God by trying to curse Israel? And do you remember the words of truth that are spoken to Balaam and what their source was? Words of truth spoken from on high through the mouth of a donkey. Yeah, the donkey speaks the words of truth. 
this is interesting in this passage today because Pilate and the soldiers, they speak the words of truth in this passage. In other words, it's a venue or it's a direction from which no one would have expected the truth to have come. A donkey spoke the truth in the Old Testament to a spokesman of God, a prophet. And in today's text, Pilate, a hated, despised Roman, speaks words of truth as the Jews are rejecting Jesus. One of the things you've got to be careful of is someone you don't like says the truth, and so you don't buy it because you don't like them. But you know, God's not constrained in the avenues or venues through which He tells you and I truth. And the thing is, it's to be open to hearing God. So in other words, if someone confronts me and, and says, uh, you're out of line in this area of your life, and I don't like them, I still have to be willing to entertain the thought that they might be right. Are you with me? I don't like you, so I don't listen to what you say. Well, that's not very good rationale. The Jews didn't like Pilate, but he was actually telling them the truth. Balaam's whacking his donkey, threatening to kill him, but the donkey's telling him the truth. You and I have to be open to hearing the truth from a source we wouldn't normally think it would come from. Now, saying this, I'm not telling you to read astrology. I'm not telling you. (laughs) Whatever truth you hear, it will conform to the truth content of the Scriptures. So we're not saying of something wacky or left field. But the direction from which it comes oftentimes will not be what you expect and not what you want. Someone who is spiritually inferior to you may tell you the truth and you don't want to hear it because it insults your intelligence because they shouldn't be able to tell you something. Or someone that you don't think is a very nice or very kind person tells you the truth and you want to reject it because you don't think they're all that hot. But no, I mean, God can speak through any source He chooses to. You have to be open to hearing it no matter what the source is. This is the other thing about the truth. You have to be careful when you reject the truth because one little choice informs another little choice and informs another little choice. If you think about where the religious leaders started in Jesus' day, you get this disciple from Galilee, comes on the scene, starts making a little bit of stir, a little bit of a buzz, makes some wine up at that marriage and feeds a few people down on the hill and you start wondering and so you investigate. And you've got the opportunity to make your decisions and you get a little bit more information, a little bit more. The more information you get that validates the truth claims, the more you turn away from that You're hardening yourself to the truth. And you make it more and more difficult to embrace the truth in the future. The sins we commit, they start making who we are over time. And if you reject the truth this time a little bit, and then you reject truth a little bit more the next time, and a little bit more, it's like turning from the light. If the light's here, you know, I turn. And it's not quite as bright as it was facing the light, but it still looks pretty light. And then you turn a little bit further and there's still a little bit of light, so it's not all that bad. But every turn, you're, you're getting less and less light. And little bit by little bit, your ability to perceive truth is being marginalized, whether you know it or not. So you have to look out for this on the front end. The little things in life tend to make you over the long term. So that when you hear some little element of truth that you want to reject for whatever reason, don't because it's those little choices to reject the truth that will impact you long term. Years ago, before I wore my glasses, I'd had 20-20 vision. And 
I didn't know that I was losing my vision slowly over time. But I started having little problems in which I thought, I'm, I'm having a little trouble reading those road signs before my exits come up. So I went and got my vision checked. And he asked me if I could read a sign in the other room. And I thought, you know, you're joking because it's blurry and it's too far away. And then he puts the corrective lenses up and says, can you read it now? Well, my jaw dropped because I could read that sign. It was clear as a bell. There was no problem whatsoever. I'd been losing my vision slowly over time, so slowly that I didn't recognize it until somebody else put up the right corrective lenses. And all of a sudden, I was aghast because I thought my vision was just fine. But it wasn't. And the corrective lenses showed me what I'd lost. And when we turn from truth little bits at a time, we're losing our sight. We're losing our ability to discern truth. And so you've got to be careful because it takes you further and further into darkness and further and further away from the light. Those little decisions you make, make you in the end. The last thing is this. There's nothing you can learn, no truth element, no subject, no topic, no area of discovery or investigation or anything else you can spend more worthy time on than Christ. Okay? If you don't learn anything else in this life except who Jesus is and what He's like and what the Father's like, you're just fine. Think of this. Let's say 10 years or 100 years from now, the earth gains its future, which is it's incinerated, and God starts a new heaven and new earth. How much of the other things in life you learned about, took time to, pains to, your golf, basketball, junior league, I don't know, whatever, you know, things that are fine and good in themselves, you know. How much of that will you remember in eternity? (laughs) I doubt if we remember much. Because it won't matter. Because in the ultimate sense of things, it has almost no value, if any. But, you know, I think the knowledge we gain of Christ here, one, to know Christ here means you get life. The more you know Christ, the more you know life, real life, experiential life, fullness of life, out of John 10. But also, I think it's going to be a little bit like this. I think in heaven, when we've forgotten all those other statistics we knew or the little oddities we like to focus on, I think the knowledge we had on earth of Christ will be like the pictures in your family album that you'll look back and you'll say, oh, that was great. Do you know what I mean? Those, that time in my Bible when I saw something new, oh, that was great. That was like the first time I saw that. That's what it'll be like. You'll forget all those other incidentals, but it'll be what you knew of Christ. That's what will stay with you. To know Jesus, He's the ultimate truth. He is reality itself. That's what truth is, reality. He is reality. So to embrace Him and to know Him, that's reality, that's truth, that's life, that's where we want to plant. We've got to be careful when we're presented with truth. We can ask God, God, you give us eyes to see what's true. It's why, frankly, I pray most times before I teach, God, you show us what we need to see, what we need to hear. No more, because we're not ready for more, but no less. You help us to perceive what you want us to perceive. And be willing to hear truth from unlikely sources. God was speaking to the Jews through Pilate. They didn't hear it, but God was speaking words of truth to Pilate. And the last thing is Christ is the subject, if you will, worthy of our investigation, worthy of our focus and our time. Let's pray.
Jesus, I'm just struck again in this passage when Pilate says, Behold the man. Um, Lord, that's uh, from a strange source. Through strange lips, you spoke words of ultimate reality. There he was, standing in all his glory, shamed and mocked by the world, Lord, but the one you were totally pleased with, the one going to fulfill your good will to die on the cross for our sins and to be raised from the dead. Lord, help us to behold this man. Lord, help us to gain real knowledge of your Son. Father, make our agenda to know you. And Father, as you speak words of truth to us, help us to be humble enough to hear it from whatever source it comes. Help us to check it against the standard of your word, the truth. Lord, at the end of the day, help us to value you and knowing you above everything else. Lord, in you at your right hand, there's, there's joy and there's pleasure forevermore. And I pray that we're gaining gulps and tastes of that now as we behold you and know the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.